Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. My guest today is Alex Gunnessing, and we're going to talk about Cornelia Delang syndrome. And Alex, uh, as far as our listeners uh, understand, it's not a, a condition that you have, uh, but it's your son, Nico. Yes, yeah, my uh, my first boy, uh, Nico, who's uh, seven years old. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast and for uh, taking the time uh, sharing about uh, Nico's condition. How are you doing? Yeah, really well, thank you. And, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to be able to tell some of Nico's story. Well, my pleasure. As you know, I love starting with a song, and I know which song you've chosen. I'm really excited about it. Uh, so would you like to share which song you've chosen and why? Yeah, so um, the song is uh, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And uh, it's actually the cover of uh, the original, uh, and it's a Nirvana cover. Uh, I know it from uh, one of my favorite albums, which is uh, the Nirvana MTV Unplugged. But um the reason why I picked this song in particular is because Nico himself, uh, we he's never really got into story time or anything like that, but he's always loved music, always loved music. And one of the best ways, even as a very young baby, to settle in was just singing, singing to him. And obviously you draw on the songs that you know or think you know the words to at least um and uh and this was one of the particular songs which i felt comfortable singing out loud uh whilst in a niku unit in a hospital where uh, other people are likely to hear me uh probably because a they they, they might not be familiar with it so uh, they won't be able to tell me i've got the words wrong uh, <laughs> but b i could pretty much get the tune about right i think as well and the reason why I was excited about it is it's also one of my favorite albums and a song that I used to play uh, on the guitar and sing myself. So I really like it. Excellent. And it's, uh, I find it therapeutic, actually, this song. It's really intense, but the lyrics are, are very simple at the same time. Yeah, and, and, and there's, a, there's like a, 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 a really nice melody to it, which I think from Nico's point of view, you know, it's such a simple melody and the, the, as you say, it's like simple lyrics and the intonation's quite relatively straightforward so that, you know, it's, it's quite a soothing, I think, from his point of view, a soothing sounding song. You know, whether uh, at some point he, he uh, gets to understand the lyrics is a very, <laughs> it's going to bring a different a different angle to what I've been singing to him for a long time. But it, it meant a lot to, to me as well because, you know, one of the lyrics about, you know, my boy, where did you sleep? Or in the original, it's my girl. And I switch it, obviously, to my boy. Um, but my boy, where did you sleep last night? And it, it just seemed to, you know, it really, there was an element of catharsis when I was singing this to him and he was sleeping in a, in a neonatal care unit and I was sleeping in a, you know, a kind of accommodation round the corner yeah. uh, in a different place. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can imagine. So it's the first time we do um, or I interview a parent on the podcast. And before we go into Nico's condition, I'd really like to uh, 
get your feel for why it's relevant to include parents or carers on, on this podcast? Well, I am um, more generally speaking, I think that in particular at the cases of rare disease where you have um, children or, or they could even be adults who can't necessarily speak for themselves and they don't necessarily have that that voice to be able to communicate their needs. It's really, it's down to families and carers and those people who are close to them to be able to help communicate what they go through on a daily basis to the wider healthcare professional community so that they can understand, you know, his doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, dietitians, speech and language, all the people involved so they can really understand what his challenges are. And I think that parents and carers play such a big role in the lives of people who can't communicate, um, you know, for themselves. Uh, and I think that your platform is, a, is a, a wonderful place to be able to communicate the needs of people with different conditions. So, um, you know, again, an opportunity to kind of raise some of that awareness about Cornelia de Lange syndrome, but also, you know, there might be other parents who might listen with a, who have children with rare disease who, who have been through a similar journey. And maybe some of what I say can, you know, resonates with their experience and can bring a little bit of sense of, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one, because it was a big thing for us because we didn't know anything about Cornelia de Lange. And, and it was really only when we started to look into it and, you know, speak to parents or carers or doctors and nurses and, and people who knew it and understood it that we started to understand more about the experience that Nico was having and our experience of having to look after Nico um, and, and the challenges associated with that. But also, you know, knowing that you're not the only one out there and someone else understands yeah. your perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's a very important point that you're raising here. So starting about Nico's condition uh, and Nico himself, uh, you've already mentioned something uh, that makes me think that his birth wasn't uh, the smoothest. Uh, would you be able to, to talk about that and, and also maybe talk about when you realized that Nico uh, had a condition? Yeah, so we... Um... Nico was our firstborn, so um, you know we went through uh, the pregnancy or went into the pregnancy, you know, with the uh, that kind of typical social framework that you know that it's all everyone is glowing and happy and it's wonderful and and you know it's the most amazing thing, which it which it absolutely is, but you don't often get to hear the stories about actually how it's challenging and difficult and when it starts to go wrong. So all of this was a really big, you know, it was a big surprise to us and it was a big sort of shock on how to deal with this when we first found out that things weren't quite going well. So even when early on in the scans between three months and six months, they could see that his growth was quite small. He was definitely going to be a small baby. And then, during a lot of these scans, um, you know, they started to pick up things like short arms and legs, and and there are very typical things that that, that sonographers and, and and nurses and doctors will look for as, let's say, markers, which um, which indicate that there may be something wrong uh, with baby. Um, they don't necessarily say what, but um, 
it may indicate that there's some challenges and, and quite a few of these boxes and these red flags were ticked. And it was around sort of halfway through the pregnancy when we really kind of had the conversation that something isn't quite right here. And, you know, we did some tests to look for um, typical genetic conditions and, um, and none of those came up positive, but they were certain that there was some kind of genetic abnormality um, and something not quite right. Uh, and and we obviously went to um, to term or almost to term. Nico was early, uh, so he was around um, around sort of eight we eight nine weeks early, I think. Um, and then he spent quite a lot of time in Niku, the neonatal care unit, when he was born. But it was when he was born that we actually got to, you know, the doctors could find out and work out what exactly was the challenge. Um, so when he was born um, a few weeks earlier than our planned uh, C-section because he needed to come out, he was very weak. Um, so he definitely needed to have a C-section rather than a, a normal birth. Um, he, uh, We had a lot of the specialists on hand and one of the specialists at the time was a geneticist. Now, we were very, very lucky in that this geneticist had actually, you know, had an experience of a number of different conditions Um, and she although we didn't know at the time she immediately recognized some of the symptoms of Cornelia de Lange syndrome because there's a whole group of different genes involved but the way that that the kids uh, look is very distinctive Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a very particular look like the kind of um, the shape of the eyebrows and having almost like a monobrow slightly upturned nose and very thin lips and short hands and legs and sometimes depending on the severity could be you know missing digits for example but it's a very distinctive look and um and that kind of set her off on the right track from the from the get-go but we didn't find out till probably a week or a week or two officially into uh, you know after he was born that it was probably Cornelia de Lange syndrome. And then they had to order a genetic test to actually look for, you know, mutations in the various different genes involved to get it officially diagnosed. But, um, but yeah, it was only after he was born that that was, uh, that really became apparent exactly what the condition was. But we are obviously, you know, very thankful and very lucky that we had a geneticist who had some familiarity because for many people that diagnostic odyssey uh, can be years uh, and sometimes even decades of not knowing exactly what is wrong, particularly in a rare disease space. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How did you react when, like you said, during the pregnancy, everyone's like, oh, that's a wonderful time. Um, But I know for having been in, in this room where you get the scans that, it's the person who does the scan and it's you and your wife or partner and that's that's it and when you get good news you come out of this room feeling very light and happy but i I imagine that getting news that are not overly positive must be quite difficult to deal with yeah definitely the um the first things is really the the kind of shock i guess because as i said there is this you know there's there's a natural worry especially with your first 
you know you don't know what to expect you've never done this before you don't know what's going on it's all new um and there is always a natural nervousness and, and worry but you know at the back of your mind you're hoping you have these scans and everything's wonderful and you can not worry about it for a few more months till the next scan um but then when you have that that very first oh, i'm not quite sure let me get the doctor and, and listen just sit down and we'll have we'll, we'll call you in a minute in a bit to go through your scans and you sat there and there's this 20 minute half an hour wait and you see other couples coming in and out during that time mm-hmm. that they're kind of like there's a certainly a shock to it and, and a panic and a worry but i think the first thing from my perspective was that i wasn't sure what to feel if if you see what i mean because there were so many emotions kind of going around at that time and and perhaps it's the you know a very typically male bravado sense of i need to be the strong one you know for my wife who is you know who's actually the one carrying carrying the baby that you know i i maybe didn't express the emotion in the same way that i perhaps should have done um uh but for me it was there was definitely a shock element there and a bit of um you know i'm not sure how to deal with this i mean i'm i'm lucky in that that the area that i work in is is science and and the kind of medical field more broadly mm-hmm. um so i have I, I, as part of my day job, I ask some of the questions around data and and what what does this mean and and what might this look like for an individual and so instantly you start to think about okay well what might that be what might and and you you can get yourself into such a a, a strange guessing game of scenarios and situations and you have no idea and you just need to wait and and this is what we had for. For, for probably six months until he was born and we actually got the diagnosis of guessing, waiting, not understanding and nervousness and worry. Um, so it was, I mean, to say it was a stressful pregnancy would uh, would be probably very accurate. Um, and I think, um, but it was more like, you know, a, a bit of shock, I think, was the main thing about not really knowing how to deal with this mentally you know, how do you kind of cope with this news and what, what's the best way to, to move forwards with with knowing something's not right, but not yeah. knowing what isn't right. Did you get any support? Um, yes. I mean, we were lucky in that, that we spent a lot of time speaking to certain specialists and, you know, geneticists and, and nurses and, you know, and, and, and I think that you get a lot of reassurance that, that the healthcare system is is doing everything they can to try and understand what's going on. But there is a limitation there in terms of, you know, with a baby that's growing inside, you can't really get a proper look at them. You can't get a lot of information about them. So a lot of the support was, you know, the most important thing for you guys is to stay positive. You know, let's try and, you know, particularly for mum, not to stress too much. So, um, which, you know, seems seems a bit counterintuitive because obviously you have this you have this kind of news then the first thing that happens is stress um but it's like mentally try and stay positive and you know let's just wait and see and 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 we'll try and find out when nico's born about what's going on so it was an it was a very anxious wait uh for his birth for sure 
for a variety oh, yeah. of reasons. I can imagine, yeah. So what are uh, Nico's symptoms? How does Cornelia de Lange syndrome present itself? So Nico's quite mild, um, which uh, we're, we're very lucky um, and grateful for in that sense. Um, but it still means, let's say, you know, if we uh, quickly look at where he is now for some context as a seven-year-old, um, you know, he, he's nonverbal. Um, he only learned to walk a couple of years ago. Uh, he can't really self-feed properly. He does need assistance and help feeding uh, properly. Um, uh, and uh, he still wears nappies, so he's, uh, you know, doubly incontinent in that sense. So mm -hmm. um, he struggles walking big distances and, and generally with his muscle tone and his and his physiology you know things like walking and climbing they're very they're done very differently let's say to his brothers okay. um uh and uh, uh, uh he's also uh, partially deaf and he's got lots of little things like you know all of his tubes in his body are very very small so things like this is one of the reasons why he struggles with his hearing he chokes a lot on his food because his esophagus, his food pipe is is quite small. He can uh, he can get infections and chest infections quite easily because his airways are quite small. Okay. So um, so there's, 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 that's kind of where he is now. And I think when he was born, though, um, you know, we probably spent a year trying to understand the breadth of symptoms which he had and would then have moving forwards okay. um, as i mentioned there's lots of different genes involved in how cornelia de Lange can manifest itself there are i think seven different genes in particular um and each gene depending on the type of of, of changes within that gene can cause a very different uh, effect of the disease, um, how it manifests itself, what it looks like in terms of both physically and mentally. And then when you're dealing with a baby, trying to understand a lot about, you know, things like their vision, how accurate it is, their hearing, if there's hearing loss or changes, if um, with things like getting infections, why is it getting infections? Is it down to his immune system? Is it down to his airways always getting clogged up? Okay. Um, if he was, he was sick a lot as a baby, I mean, Pretty much every meal would come back up um, because he would choke, um, which you know has it consequences on on its on on his health mm -hmm. itself because of the amount of food he can intake and and things like that. So you know, whereas you'd normally be getting into a reasonably good routine after nine months of of three square meals a day and bottles, um, yeah. you know, with him he was uh, he was still on almost you know blended food and we would be feeding him little and often so maybe five six meals a lot smaller ones just to try and make sure he has the opportunity to get enough food in him to some extent um you know he was tube fed for a long time as well because of his inability to drink milk um, okay. he would cough and choke um uh, and uh, so having a tube which we would then feed him every three hours and 
you know, um, uh, we're, we're lucky enough to have a, a third little boy who's who's actually a year old today, um, and he will guzzle down, you know, 250 mils of milk in a minute. Yeah. And we would spend maybe an hour trying to drip feed 100 mils of milk uh, through, through a tube by gravity, holding it above uh, Nico's head, um, an hour doing that, and then having to do that every three hours. Um, wow. so it's, you know, it's a, it was a, it was a real challenge in terms of adjusting to understanding what, what the challenge of the disease was for him yeah. and what that meant to how we, you know, could, could go about living as normal life as possible for, with him, mm-hmm. um, and adjusting to his needs. Yeah. And I have a question on that actually. So you've explained or you've shared in, in, I don't know, a few minutes what seems to be a long journey and learning curve. Do you feel like you are fully adjusted now and it's something you can control a bit more? That's a great question. Um, uh, I would have to say yes and no. Nico's particular genetic change that he has, and, and I mentioned before that, that I kind of work in that kind of healthcare space. So I've accessed a lots of information and journals and papers. And I've, you know, there is no documented medical record that's out there in the public domain for his particular mutation. There is about other mutations in his gene and okay. change in his gene. Um, and, and so for his particular genetic variant, the, having no documented case studies out there, his future, his tomorrow is an unknown, you know, and it always has been an unknown. Um, so, you know, we didn't know if he would be able to walk, for example. So when he started walking at five years old, and I think he was spurred on by his uh, his younger brother when he was born and when he learn how to walk I think it really gave him that drive and that impetus because he is he's very driven he's very focused he you know he 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 knows what he wants to do and he will try and do it and I think once he saw his brother walking he was like right I'm going to try and walk um but it was amazing to see it was you know uh it was a wonderful moment very very emotional when he started to just walk and and because we didn't know if that was going to happen you know, we didn't. We we don't really know. He started to talk a little bit, for example, when he was younger. But but children with Cornelia Delang syndrome often have something called selective mutism, which is where um, you know they may start talking, but then they stop talking. So he could count as a little, you know, maybe one and a half, two year old. He could count one, two, three, or four, five, six, and then he could also do it in Greek because his mum's uh, Greek. So. Um, and we were like, this is amazing. I can't believe it. This is fantastic. And then, you know, one day he just stopped and, you know, he stopped talking. Um, and uh, and he he now, you know, he communicates through sound and he there occasionally there are certain words that he sort of tries. But most of the time, you know, um, the thing that you recognize most is when he's singing, he's humming and singing and you know he'll be walking around the house and the next thing you you know you'll hear twinkle twinkle uh, or you'll hear london bridge is falling down and um you know the kind of nursery rhymes or songs you recognize the melodies and that's 
in part because I think he loves music that much that that you know it it becomes very much a part of his day to day music and and rhythm and 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 making a lot of noise. So okay. so yeah, there was a lot of unknowns. Um, there still are a lot of unknowns. There are. You know, we have to be aware of things like epilepsy, which is something which a lot of kids with CDLS uh, suffer with. So as he gets okay. older, we need to keep an eye on things like that. Mm-hmm. He's he's has yearly checkups with a cardiologist, for example, and then, you know, with his kidneys and his livers to look for things like cysts, which, are, which can be very common. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with things like toilet training, you know, if he'll be in nappies forever. So there's still a lot of unknowns, um, but we're lucky that he is supported by a wonderful school, um, uh, Park Lane uh, School in uh, where we live is is a school that that supports children with many, many, many different conditions. And... um, and he has wonderful teachers and staff there who really, you know, try and take him through as a seven-year-old, some kind of curriculum, learning about numbers, learning about food, learning about people, trying to express emotions. And, and they do it in such an engaging way that, that, that he loves it. And, and, you know, we regularly see pictures, you know, that his teacher, uh, Ollie posts, who, you know, of him smiles on his face and laughing his head off and seems to be having a wonderful time. So the future is definitely unknown. um, But I would say that we are more comfortable with dealing with that unknown. So before it was an unknown, and that was a massive mental strain. Whereas now it's an unknown and well, let's just see what happens, you know, let's see how the world plays out and let's see what Nico's up for next in terms of a challenge to overcome. That's a very positive way of looking at it. That's very good to hear. Uh, so you, you said that Nico is nonverbal. How do you communicate with him and how does he communicate with you? Um, it. In terms of communicating with him, we talk to him as normally as we can and we interact with him as normally as we can. You know, we'll, if he picks up a plate and starts throwing it across the floor, he'll get told off that this is not a good thing to do and we should try and discourage this, you know. Um, uh, you know, he went through a bit of a biting phase for a while, like I think a lot of kids do, um, you know, and and. and and, and, you know, you had to just try and communicate in a normal way with him. Um, but there are certain things and tricks that, that we've learned. And, and actually, to be honest, I think these can be applied across the board with children. But, you know, when children are anxious or upset, they have a very particular way of, of expressing themselves. And I think with every child, whether there's something challenging related to them uh, or not, they, it's different. And his particular way of expressing himself when he's annoyed is is certainly to kind of like pick up things and throw things or like bang the door repeatedly. So a lot of repetitive behaviors. Um, so banging things out of frustration. Um, and, and, you know, we have to try and find a way to, to calm him and change his mood and cheer him up. And, and again, the best way to do that is always through music you know, um, sing him a song, give him a cuddle and, and have a dance with him. Um, and normally you can kind of snap him out a little bit of his mood and, 
and get him into back into being in a happier place. But in terms of how does he communicate, um, it's a hard one because to some extent it's about the subtle cues that you need to look out for. So if he, you know, he suffers from constipation a lot and, you know, we can normally guess when he needs to go to the toilet about 20 minutes beforehand because there's certain ways that he stands or he holds himself on something or he'll bend over in a particular way or if he's if he's suffering from a lot of wind let's say you know and and we need to you know sit him down and do some bicycles with his legs and move them back and forth to try and help him you know relieve some of that pain mm-hmm. um he'll stand in a certain way or or um you know he'll bend over in a certain way and then and then in terms of like you know when he's happy he makes it very very obvious when he's happy i mean you know huge smiles throws his head back and and sort of shakes his arms and his head and 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 sort of makes his own sort of shouts that he's he's very happy and enjoying something and gets excited so when the three kids are running around and it's all absolute chaos, he he absolutely loves to be involved with the noise. Even though he doesn't necessarily, you know, take part in the activity, he'll still run around shaking his head and shouting and laughing. Um, so you you get used to it as a parent, I think, understanding those nonverbal cues, whether it be behavior or whether it be how he, you know, physically how he positions himself. But it's it is a bit like learning a language. Um, it's a bit like learning a language and nobody telling you what it is in your own language. So like being abandoned on a desert island with people who don't speak any English, for example, I mean, you would have to learn how to communicate. And, and, and it's like learning a language in that sense. You've just, you know, you, you're not entirely sure what's being said, but you need to work it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and going back to my first question, I think that's exactly where you as a parent, you understand Nico so well, much better than anyone else. And I think it's great that you you take that position to raise awareness, to advocate for him. I think that that's amazing. Well, I think, I mean, just, just touching briefly on that, I think um, for every rare disease uh, in particular, it's the same that the parents or the carers or the family, whoever is looking after those individuals, you know, they become almost the expert, not even, not, not, not just related to the individual, but they have to understand the complexities of how a disease might manifest itself over time and, you know, what challenges when and what that might mean for that individual looking to the future, but have that conversation with their local GP um you know or when they go into a hospital and they meet a cardiologist who normally spends their time looking at let's say the older population with their failing hearts and then suddenly you're you're in here with a a five six seven year old um you know who's never and and this this cardiologist has never heard of of cornelia de lang syndrome so you need to explain the disease and what, what it means and what it means for nico's heart or or one of his other organs so you know, any any parent or carer or anyone who's involved with rare disease will know what it's like to, you know, become that that specialist. And it it's a very second nature thing. And and for everyone, the more people who have a basic awareness, you know, the more of a massive difference it can make to a conversation. 
Yeah. You, know, yeah. Uh, you, you can skip the first 10 minutes. What is Cornelia DeLange syndrome? If someone knows a little bit more about it. So, um, you know, you can get into the nitty gritty of finding solutions rather than presenting what the problems are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. You talked about like taking Nico to like the hospital. They don't really know necessarily his condition, how it affects him, but they are professionals and they deal with many different conditions every day. How about people around you? So your family and friends, how do they do they interact with Nico? Like, have there been any difficult situations because of Nico's condition, or are people generally welcoming and and adapting and supporting? So, for family, uh, it's a very different scenario, let's say, than you know, for the general public. Um, and I think for family, Nico has. A wonderfully supportive wider family on on both sides um and he's just always been you know nico he he does things a little bit differently but yeah we still you know everyone loves him all the same if not more and um and you know they have all you know taken their time to understand for him his subtle cues and, and and what that might mean and how he might communicate mm-hmm. so you know it's a it's a wonderful thing because you know if i think about the wider family you know 15 20 people uh, across both sides who who you know now understand more about the disease about dealing with certain behaviors about how he might be communicating when he's happy when he's not happy even down to you know they know what presents to buy him Uh, because they know what he enjoys and and okay it does mean that you know we get lots of things like drum kits and tambourines and really (laughs) loud toys to have in the house that that is endless amounts of background noise but you know to be fair that that's what other people should buy your your children (laughs) (laughs) so yeah um but it's wonderful that that he has this amazing network and and not just family but also like i mentioned the school network as well yeah of, and, and the guys who, who who looked after him in nursery and, you know, everyone who meets him loves him, which is a wonderful thing. And, you know, when they actually get to see him and, and, and spend a bit of time with him, they're all like, oh, Nick, they all fall in love with Nico, which is wonderful. Um, I think in terms of the general public, um, it's a little bit harder. I mean, you know, I think we're, we're lucky in the UK that there is, um, there is a lot of uh, understanding and maybe appreciation for um, people with um, with uh, special needs and people who have different complex needs as well. And we're lucky that there's also a general level of awareness. So, you know, if we go out for dinner, um, Nico doesn't like to eat dinner in, in places he's not familiar with. Um, what tends to happen with dinner is that he tears it up into as small a pieces as he can and then throws it around the restaurant. Okay. Um, which, which you know, if it's chips, it's easier to deal with than if it's beans, uh, for example. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you get some people who, will, who would look at you a bit strangely and, and look at him and look at what he's doing. 
Um, but I think you just get used to that because it's just the nature of, of, of how different we all are as humans in our life experience that we've experienced this before and we don't think much of it. And maybe other people have never seen this kind of thing before. So they don't know what to make of it and they don't understand it. Um, you know, so, but generally speaking, you know, there's, there's patience is the thing that I would say that we've been lucky enough to have, um, from everybody. I mean, there's a lot of patients, whether it be through work who are patient with us when we have to have Nico on a call cause he's off ill or, you know, when he's in hospital and, and he's storming around the corridors, pulling, you know, IV bags and, and tags on things and taking everything out of the trays and unfolding all the bed sheets. Then, you know, the nurses are laughing at him and almost encouraging him to have fun. Um, and I think that we're lucky in that sense that people have a lot of patience to, even if they don't understand it, they, you know, know that, that there's something going on there that is just different. It sounds like it's a, a lot of accompanying and, and care from your end. Almost 24 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> How do you get some rest? Like, do you do you manage to get a break and and like find things you can do with your wife um, to to like take a bit of of a, a back step and and relax a bit? Um, the first time, I mean, I, I'm kind of laughing about this, but I think the first <laughs> time that that Nikki and I went for dinner together after Nico was born was I think about two and a half years after he was actually born and we had yeah. the opportunity to go out for a meal because there was someone who understood him and knew him well enough who could babysit. So one of the the the, um, the girls at nursery that he was at said, oh, listen, you guys go out. Um, so I would say at first it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult to rest. He's not a good sleeper. Um, you know, we would be up late with tube feeds and you know, taking turns looking after him and, and um, there wasn't a lot of rest uh, and there wasn't a lot of that um, mental recharge that, that you need, you know, it's um, because you would, you know, you'd be trying to fit in work, you'd be trying to fit in paying the bills, trying to fit in buying food for the house. But at the same time, you're also 24 hours a day almost you know, looking and, and, and constantly watching him to see what he's doing. He doesn't eat something. He's not choking, you know, everything's all right. But I think the biggest thing that changed that was probably having another child. And you suddenly realize that, oh, hang on, actually, Nico's probably all right because this little tiny baby isn't all right and needs a bit of attention. Mm -hmm. So it meant that things got a little bit more complex um, when Nico's uh, brother was born because, you know, we had to readjust how we, um, how we uh, probably supported him in the sense that we were probably too supportive. You know, we, 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 we you know, would wrap him up in cotton wool kind of thing and, prevent him from doing anything but then when there's another little uh, pair of feet running around you kind of have to let go a little bit to some extent which was a good thing for us because you know 
move on six months after his Buddha was born. And then we were probably more relaxed about what Nico was doing. You know, and as he gets older, we're definitely more relaxed because, you know, there's less chance of him choking on things and because um, he now knows that, you know, certain things are not very good to eat uh, or, or he avoids eating certain things. Um, he still will eat everything, um, but um, but he'll certainly chew on everything. Um, but he uh, he will try not to swallow everything that he finds, like batteries or something like that. Take the TV remote, take the back off, take all the batteries out and start, you know, playing with them. Um, and this is the kind of level of detail you need to have in terms of everything is at six foot or five, four or five foot high off the floor because you're like, Nico can't reach it. And anything that, that is, is reachable becomes then, you know, an opportunity for him to, uh, to play with. So, um, you know, whether it be my, uh, my, my geeky prize Lego or uh, the records I have, they all have to be high up. Um, so that he can't get his hands on them and start chewing on my records, for example. Oh, how, how well did that go? <laughs> uh, some of them have suffered quite badly. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah. But um, but you know, I think I, I think having another having another um, a little one really helped us realize that we could we can step away and we're allowed to step away. Yeah, I think there's a big piece on, you know, are you allowed? Do you let yourself uh, give yourself the opportunity to to switch off for a bit? And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a guilt associated yeah. with, with doing that. And I think once we got over that a little bit and realized actually it's to Nico's benefit for us to be able to turn off for a while and take an hour out, you know, we now try and do it a little bit more often. Um It doesn't happen a huge amount, but if we can, if we can get a couple of hours every couple of months, just to the two of us, where we go out for dinner, or you know, we uh, we go for lunch somewhere, or whatever it may be, cinemas generally a no go, um, you know. Uh, but that's mainly down to the fact that we have different tastes in films. Um, but you know, uh, that opportunity to switch off for a few hours is—it's amazing the recharge you can get from that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But it took a while. It took a while for us to, to get there. Yeah, and I bet there's a, there's a, a side of it where, like, if you step back, if you manage to to think about it, like, realizing that you're doing well as well must be quite something. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, I. Uh, I think that's probably the hardest thing because, you know, again, being surrounded by so many people who are so supportive and say, oh, you know, you do amazingly with Nico, you know, you do amazingly, you know, integrating everything you need to do with him into your day to day. You always feel like you can do more. You always feel like you can give more or be more or I don't know, just it's hard. It's really hard to, to kind of switch off. The caring and the 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 loving piece. It's it you know, and always feeling like you can be better. Um, but I think you're completely right. I think that 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 everyone, no matter your walk in life, um, and no matter the challenge that you've got, you know, we should all take that opportunity to, to say to ourselves, "Do you know what? You're doing all right." Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're doing all right. Don't beat yourself up.
so it doesn't happen very often, but, you know, very occasionally, you know, we do turn around and go, do you know what? This is hard, but actually this is fun. This is great. We wouldn't have him any other way. And I, and I think it kind of comes back to with him being our firstborn, parenting is hard for everyone. It's new for everyone for the firstborn. They don't know what to do. It it, there's no amount of books you can read that can prepare you for um for for the challenges you face as a parent so with nico that was our that was the new norm it was just that's what normal was that's what parenting was that's what you know having a child is like and 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 you just adapt in that sense and it was only when we had our other two kids who didn't necessarily have the same challenges that um that we realized oh actually you know so this is what parenting is supposed to be Oh, okay. And in some ways it's harder because they talk back to you. Um, <laughs> well, <so. yeah. laughs> that's, a, that's a way of looking at it. And yeah, I can definitely see that side at home. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, amazing talking to you, understanding Nico, um, understanding how you adapted to to his condition and and I think like from my side I I always worry when I see someone like who doesn't have the same condition as Nico necessarily but who doesn't seem to have the same options in life as others. But you've actually described some moments that that seem amazing and and Nico seems to be thriving at school and so on. So it's really, really positive to hear that. It makes me feel very positive, actually. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, life is what you make it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. No matter what your choices are, you've got to try and make the best opportunity out of it. And I think, you know, that's what we and everyone who supports Nico tries to do, just give him that opportunity to live his best life. Yeah. Uh, I always finish with the same question, but today I'm going to give it a twist. So it's going to be two <laughs> questions in one. Okay. Uh, so what's your happy place, a place where you feel at peace? And what's Nico's happy place? Oh, that's two very good questions. Nico's happy place is being involved with music and rhythm, you know, that is absolutely when he's his happiest. Um, now, whether that is humming along to himself as he's, you know, walking around playing, whether it's having an instrument like a piano or a keyboard to play with or a drum, um, you know, uh, whether he's playing on my guitar upstairs or, or playing with, you know, in the music class at school, that I think is when he is definitely most happiest when he's involved in music. Nice. Um, yeah, it's it, you, the the smile on his face is just you know it, it's something that you just can't put into words when you have that moment when you know that he is absolutely in his mo- he's in his zen place. Nice. He's happy and he's at peace and there's no challenges and and it's just him and it's him and music in whatever form that might be. Um, that's definitely his uh, happy place. My happy place, um, 
my happy place is often right there, you know, next to him enjoying that piece of music. So you know, I would say it's, you know, one of my favorite things and, and happiest places to be is when I'm putting the kids to bed. And like I said, we don't do stories because he's never really been into stories. So bedtime in our house is, is, is a singing routine. You know, it's singing some Nirvana and some Foo Fighters and some David Bowie and, and you know, all done in kind of nursery rhyme style versions of um, of this. And, and, you know, occasionally he might hum along, but it's when he sort of turns around, he looks at you and he knows, you know, you know that he's enjoying this and he's going to sleep with a smile on his face. And, you know, his brothers are singing along too, and they're also going to sleep with a smile on their face, in their faces. So... For me, my happy place is probably that that moment singing with my three boys, putting them to bed. Um, yeah, and, and knowing that everyone is is sleeping soundly with a smile on their face. Oh, that sounds really nice. And there's probably an album in the making here with a uh, like nursery rhyme version of the Foo Fighters. I'm, yeah. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's certainly, a, <laughs> you know, if, if some clever person hasn't thought of it before, there'll be a Spotify playlist somewhere of uh, yes. nursery yeah. rhyme rock songs. Well, Alex, thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us for raising awareness. It's been very nice talking to you and I really enjoyed learning more about Nico. Well, thank so you so much and uh, appreciate, uh, you know, you taking us ta taking the time to include us on the, the One Condition podcast and, and uh, we really appreciate it on behalf of Nico and, and the family.